We're going to finish up tonight Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and this is sort of a, uh, when you get to the end of 9, you hit a new section in the book, and really what's been happening up until now, if you've been with us, you know that Solomon has been, he, he has been looking at uh, all of life under the sun. Uh, all of life under the sun, the term under the sun refers to the viewpoint, it refers to the viewpoint <clears throat> of living life without God. It, refu- it refers to what we would call the secular viewpoint. The secular viewpoint is this is the only world that there is. We came from nothing, we live, we die, and we go into nothing. So there's no God, there's no, no judgment, there's no accountability. Uh, that's a very popular view today, the secular view. This is the only world that there is. But throughout Scripture, we are told virtually on every page that uh, this is not the only world that there is. Jesus said this was not the only world that there is. But what happened to Solomon was at, at you know, the Lord appeared to him twice. Uh, King David was his father. In a sense, uh, he had a tremendous start in life because of his father. Uh, he was going to be the next king after his dad. Uh, his father wanted to build the temple because of the fact that he was a warrior and had so much blood on his hands. God said, no, you can't build the temple, but I'll have your son do it. So David accumulated all of the materials and had it all ready so that when Solomon ascended the throne, he could get right to work. Uh, He had a great start. The Lord appeared to him twice as a young man. But somewhere in midlife, uh, he got off the rails. He uh, started to pursue life under the sun. He decided he was going to pursue what life was like without God. Uh, made uh, a number of bad choices, and, and, and he took that, he, he, he would take different trails. He took women, and he drove that trail as far as you could drive it. He took materialism. He decided not to build a house. He decided to build houses. He says in Ecclesiastes 2, I built houses for myself. He just kept building. The guy, he was one of those guys, he never quit building. He just, he's always building because he always wants more. So he took materialism, and he just took it as far and, and further than anybody could take it because he was the wealthiest man in the world. Um, whatever he went after under the sun, he went full bore, full steam, with all the, he had more resources than anybody else in the world. And what he kept coming to on these dead ends, when he would take these, uh, when he would take these boulevards, he'd finally crash into a wall, and he said, listen, I've tried this, I pursued it with my whole heart, uh, life without God, life under the sun, the women, the booze, all this stuff. I've done it. And let me tell you something. Life is empty. It's absolutely, totally empty and futile. That's why throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see the phrase vanity of vanities. And, and really, what you, you know, life is a wisp. Life is just a breath and you're gone. Um, if this is all there is, then get all the gusto that you can. And a lot of people hold that view today. But the problem is there is a God and he knew there was a God. And at some point, he repented, got back on the rails, and that's why, at, at, and he wrote this towards the end of his life, at certain junctures in this book, you're going to see him returning to, everything is futile, everything is empty, I've tried this, i tried this, you know, we're trying this, we're trying this. He said, I'm telling you, it's empty. You go ahead and try it, but it's empty. And then at certain junctures, 
it's like you got a rest stop and he says, so fear God, uh, lo love the woman of your life, work as hard as you can with all your might, uh, what God has given you, enjoy it, eat, eat the bread of your labor, eat a cheeseburger, watch a ball game. That's in essence what he's saying. The life that you have been given by God, enjoy it. We saw earlier in Ecclesiastes that the gift of prosperity does not come necessarily with the gift of being able to enjoy the prosperity. Did you get that? If, if God gives you wealth, he doesn't at the same time give you the ability to enjoy the wealth. The only way to enjoy the good gifts of God is to include God in your life and not live under the sun, but to bow to him as over the sun and created the sun. But you see, this is very hard for us to do because we all are so self-sufficient. The last half of Ecclesiastes 9 tonight, in my mind, uh, could be titled um, The Case Against Self-Sufficiency. In fact, if it was a coin, uh, uh, so on one side you'd have the case against self-sufficiency. On the other side, you would have the error of relying upon your natural gifts. Let me say that again. On one side of the coin, uh, and this would be Ecclesiastes 9, it would be verses 11 down through 17. So on one side of the coin, it's the case against self-sufficiency. You flip it over, and you got the error of relying upon your natural gifts. Back in the 1800s, uh, late 1800s, there was a poem that was extremely popular. In fact, Someone told me today that this poem was the favorite poem of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's called Invictus. It was written by a man named William Ernest Henley, uh, who lived in England, died in 1903. Uh, this, this, this poem captures the philosophy of self-sufficiency, that I've got it together, I've got what it takes, yeah, I've got certain natural gifts, and I don't need anybody and I got this thing wired, and no matter what life throws at me, I can handle it. Sort of the, uh, the epitome of, well, you know, oftentimes we'll think back to the, uh, the, the stiff upper lip that you'd see sometimes with the British Empire. You, you, just, you, just, you just suck it up and you keep going. Listen to this poem, Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I mean, this guy's got it together. Now, here are the famous lines. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is human pride, hubris, and self-sufficiency. And we've all been inf infected with it. Um, 
Ecclesiastes 9 is going to absolutely devastate that. And, and oh, and here's the thing. When, 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 when God gets a hold of you, and when he draws you to himself, he's going to go to work obliterating this in your life and in my life. This deep, deep sense that I don't need anybody or anything, but I am self-sufficient, and I got this thing wired. I got this thing handled. So, let's begin with verse 11. <clears throat> and, and in fact, and let, let me go ahead and give you the four ideas that are here. I do this because if I don't do it at the beginning, I have learned I have a tendency to forget. And sometimes I give you a two out of four, sometimes I give you three out of four. If I've taken enough ginseng, I give you four out of four. But I don't always get it, so let me just give it to you up front. So in chapter 9, verse 11, you see this principle. The gift of natural abilities does not ensure success. The gift of natural abilities does not ensure success. That's verse 11. Everyone has natural abilities. That's not a guarantee you're going to be successful in life the way you want to be successful. So, the gift of natural abilities does not ensure success. Uh, number two, in verse 12, you see this principle. Unforeseen events can disrupt your very best opportunities. Unforeseen events can disrupt your very best opportunities. Isn't this encouraging? Aren't you glad you came? But you've experienced this. And, you know, if, any, if Solomon does anything, he'll tell you the brutal truth. He'll tell you the brutal facts. So verse 12, unforeseen events can disrupt your best opportunities. Then in 13 to 16, we see this principle. Calamities and defeats. Calamities and defeats can lead to wisdom and victory. That's verse 13 through 16. Calamities and defeats can lead to wisdom and victory. And then the fourth principle would be in verses 16 through 17. And I've just simply titled this, and I'll explain it. But for now, let's just say verses 16 and 17. The principle is that the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. Okay. So, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Really? Okay, let's look at verse 11. I saw again, that the, uh, I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors. He, he's going to give five illustrations of natural endowments, of natural gifts, okay? I saw... Again, I saw under the sun. Now watch this. The race is not to the swift. Usually, the race is to the swift. Now, if you're swift, why are you swift? God gave you the gift. Don't ever forget that. Whatever, and see, everybody's got different gifts. 
1 Corinthians 4, 7 should go here, even before I finish reading verse 11. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And what do you have that you did not receive? In your whole life, in your whole, whole existence, yeah, you know, there's a, there, there's a book out, and there are different books on these uh, concepts. One is called Strengths Finder. Yeah, Strength Finder. And you can, you know, and these are helpful because they help you figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at, and that's true for everybody. Or there's the DISC uh, profile. It'll tell you, you know, what, how you're wired, what your personality's like. It'll tell you, all right, yes, because of you're this way, you'll do well in these situations, but you ought to avoid these situations. You'd be good in this capacity, but this capacity here, you ought to stay away from that because you're not wired for that. We all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. Whatever, whatever strengths you have, whatever gifts you have, if you've got great hand-eye coordination, it's because God gave it to you. If you're swift, God gave it to you. If some guys are swift on their feet, some guys are swift with their brains. A lot of times, guys that are really, really swift with their brains aren't swift with their feet. There are guys who we used to laugh at in high school that are worth billions. And I mean, they couldn't make a free throw if you gave them 100 years. But they can do algorithms in their sleep. And I don't even know what an algorithm is. <laughs> but whatever you have that's a strength, it's God-given. Okay. I saw again that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. You think it would be? And sometimes it is. But the race isn't always to the swift. And the battle is not to the warriors. Gosh, you'd think that the battle would be won by the warriors. But sometimes warriors get defeated. They get defeated by some guy who doesn't even look like a warrior. They look like they get defeated by some guy that's not even on the, uh, on the battlefield. They get, they get defeated by some guy who's in a back room somewhere. But he's all into strategy. And he's into reading Von Clausewitz. Von Clausewitz was all about strategy and warfare. All these principles of warfare that he thought long and hard. He thought deeply about the strategies. So just because you're a warrior, just because you're built like a warrior, just because you're one of those guys that's on the front line, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to win the battle. Even though you've got the build, you've got the strength, you've got the capacity to fight, you can take a punch and keep going, that doesn't mean you're going to win. Okay. And neither is bread to the wise. You would, thought, you would think guys that, that, that are wise would always do well financially. But, and sometimes they do, but not always. Now, this is the third week in a row I'm going to mention Shark Tank. <laughs> I never watched Shark Tank in my life until a couple of months ago, and I've watched 174 uh, programs uh, in the last 12 hours. It, uh, I, it's really kind of a fascinating show. Every once in a while, you'll see some guy get up there, and he's got this idea, and this guy is brilliant. He's brilliant. And he's got this idea... And he's poured his savings into it. He's poured the last four years into it. He has sacrificed. When they interview him afterwards, he's crying and talking about his kids. And they all just turned him down. Why? It's brilliant. 
but no one wants to go in with him. Because there's a key point he's missing, or is this he's missing? You'd think, I mean, to him, this is going to be the answer to his troubles financially. And no, actually, it isn't. It's a brilliant idea, but maybe it's not needed. Okay. Neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning. Same thing. This isn't spiritual discernment. This is, uh, to me, the, the idea here behind discerning is, guys, I think with... Uh, uh, guys who are chess players. The best chess players are, they're thinking uh, five, six, seven moves ahead. Most guys play chess and, you know, you're thinking the next move. Uh, this, uh, the sermon here, are, some people have just, they're analytical and they're visionary and they're five, six, seven steps ahead of everybody else. And you'd think that... Uh, they would accumulate wealth. Sometimes they do. Not always. Not always. Uh, nor favor to men of ability. You would think if you've got great abilities, you're always going to have great favor, but not always. You see? Uh, at some point in your life, someone has to take a liking to you. I don't care who you are. Uh, 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 isn't it interesting if you look back over your life, at, at some point, you'll probably see that someone that you really didn't know that well, but someone uh, who was older and more mature and maybe in your field of interest, whatever, but they just, they just liked you. And they were motivated to help you and to kind of clear a path for you, maybe make a few phone calls for you. I had that happen to me. And there was really no reason for it. It, it was just favor. Um, but sometimes men of ability don't get favor. Men of great abilities. And then he goes on. So uh, I'm, I've, I've read this and I've broken it up. Let's read it all in one piece. 11. I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. Watch this. For time and chance overtake them all. That word chance would be better. It's, it's not chance like uh, games of chance. It's unforeseen events. Um, there is no chance under the sovereignty of God. And you've got to take the context of the whole book. The, the whole book is there, a God, there is a God who is over the sun, who, who, who rules everything, who rules every human heart, who rules every nation, and uh, he even rules games of chance. But this isn't really talking about chance, but let's just take chance. You see, from a human standpoint, it seems like certain things just happen, oh, I was just lucky. No, that's the providence of God, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Um, I was just lucky. Uh, oh, it was just the luck of the draw. Oh, it was just the roll of the dice. Proverbs 16, might be 33. I'm not sure. But it's the last verse in Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap. The dice are rolled. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I remember a uh, long time ago, I was speaking to a group of Christian doctors in Las Vegas, they were having their national convention, and the national convention was going all weekend, but the Christian guys 
had this breakfast at 7 a.m. on Sunday morning. And uh, most of the guys had been up till 7. But the Christian guys were going to this prayer breakfast Sunday morning at 7. So I'm going from my room, and to get to the uh, ballroom, I got to walk across this casino floor. And I was fascinated, 6.30, 6.45 in the morning, how many people were in there throwing dice who obviously had been up all night? Come on, baby. Come on, baby. And I'm watching these guys. And suddenly, ah! Or, oh, gosh. And I thought of that verse. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Oh, it's chance. No, it's not. God controls dice. God only controls dice. God controls casinos. God controls the mafia. God controls Vegas. God controls everything. That's why what you do in Vegas won't stay in Vegas. <laughs> because your sin will... In fact, it says you can be sure your sin will find you out. Why? Because there is a God over the sun who watches over all things. When it says for time and chance overtake them all, you see... The principle is that uh, you, you may have natural abilities. You may be wise. You may be discerning. You may be swift. You may be a warrior. But uh, the gift of natural abilities does not ensure success. L let's look at verse 12, and then we'll come back and make some observations. Verse 12, our principle, our second principle is unforeseen events can disrupt the best opportunities. Unforeseen events can disrupt the best opportunities. So when it says in 11, time and events overtake them all, it's more, explained more in 12. Moreover, man does not know his time. Uh, you don't know when you're going to die. We all think, we read some quotes last week, and one of the quotes from one of the old Puritan pastors says, no matter how old you are, no matter how far down the path of life you are, you think you at least have one more year. But you don't know that, and I don't know it. Man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. This is not just death. It's unforeseen events. You've had this happen to you. And, and so, you know, we walk around uh, thinking we're so self-sufficient. Um, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Actually, uh, you're, uh, you're, a, you're a fish in a net. You're a bird in a snare. I might, you, you might be doing fine, and all of a sudden, your life can change with a phone call. Your life can change with an email. Can it not? And you've had it happen to you. I've had it happen to me. You're cruising along, life's going pretty good, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, you're trapped in an unforeseen event. And it's not good news. And your natural abilities aren't going to get you out of this thing. Um, in fact, you, you may have been on the verge of a wonderful opportunity that were really going to enable your natural abilities to shine and come to the surface, and you were going to be honored, and all this good stuff was going to happen to you. And then all of a sudden, something happens that you never saw coming, and you're blindsided. And you're like a fish in a trap, man. You're like a fish in a snare.
So in your high school class, when you graduated, um, did they have on the yearbook most likely to succeed? And sometimes, and why, why is someone picked most likely to succeed? Well, because they got a lot of natural abilities. You know, they got smarts, they got personality, they got this, they get, you know, they, some kind of giant brain or personality or whatever they are. Um, this guy's going somewhere. And sometimes they go somewhere and sometimes they don't. So Derek Kidner writes these words from verses 11 and 12. This is really, really good. I got a lot of commentaries on Ecclesiastes. This is the smallest, probably the most profound, Derek Kidner's. He, he compacts so much truth into a sentence. It, it really irritates me <laughs> that I can't do this. <laughs> I didn't get that. He has a unique gift. Listen to this. He's, he's talking about verses 11 and 12. Time and chance are paired, no doubt, because they both have a way, watch this, of suddenly taking matters out of our own hands. You see, I'm the master of my fate. No, no, you're not. I'm the captain of my soul. No, actually, you're not. This is obvious enough where chance is concerned, for providence operates in secret, and to a man's view is largely made up of steps into the unknown and events out of the blue, any of which may change our whole pattern of existence in a moment. With regard to time, Ecclesiastes 3 said there's a time to be born and a time to die, and so on. <clears throat> that chapter has already shown how relentlessly our lives are swung from one extreme to another by the tidal pull of forces we do not control. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. We are pulled by the tidal pull of forces we do not control. And the one behind it all is Almighty God. So in 12, we made the principle, unforeseen events can disrupt the best opportunities. If you look at 12 more carefully, it, it, it says, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous nest, uh, net, birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. See, this is what you would call, um, when, when something that's not good interrupts your life and interrupts your plans and interrupts your dreams uh, and interrupts your opportunities and it comes out of nowhere suddenly, uh, that can be not just disappointing, that can, be a, that can be an absolute calamity in your life. Uh, let's look at three verses. Let's go to Jeremiah 9.23. You say, well, you know, Steve, actually, I've been doing pretty well. I'm a pretty self-sufficient guy. I've, I've been, I mean, I've done really well. I've built some amazing buildings. I have, uh, I've built some amazing companies with some amazing people. And everybody likes me. And I get along with everybody. And um, I've been very successful. My hair is weird, but I've been very successful. 
I mean, I don't know. I'm just talking off the top of my head here. It, it's, we've all done this. We've all done this. Look at Jeremiah. We all tend to boast. Why would we boast? Well, because we're self-sufficient. Uh, were, you a great, uh, were you a great athlete? Some guys are, some guys aren't. And, and some guys are good athletes, but other guys, they're, they're a step above. They're just, I mean, they're just another, they're in another league, literally. So let's go to Jeremiah 9. We, and, and, and here's what we tend to do. We tend to boast of what we've been given. If, if whatever your skill set is, um, it, it, it's really easy to boast about and to think, this is something you've done. This is, and we get self-sufficient. I've done this. I've accomplished this. Man, I'm ahead of the pack here. Okay, Jeremiah 9, <clears throat> 23. Thus says the Lord, not, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercise loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. The thing, the thing that we boast about is that we know him. Um, go to Jeremiah 10, 23. Now, see, this is what happens when he comes into our life. Because instead of, instead of being self-sufficient, and instead of relying upon our natural gifts, we understand that everything we have comes from him. Now look at Jeremiah 10, 23. Uh, because you see, when we're self-sufficient, we make our plans and we set our course and we have our goals and we have our objectives and we do our uh, short-term planning, we do our long-term planning, we do all this stuff. And then look at this. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. We think we do direct our steps. We think we do set the course of our lives. Uh, we have plans, but Proverbs, if I'm not mistaken, Proverbs 16 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And then look at Isaiah 45, verse 7. See, we're, we're so self-sufficient, but I, 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 uh, Jeremiah says, a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. You never know when you're going to hit a snare. You never know when you're going to hit a trap. Let's go to Isaiah 45, 7. Give me a second here. Uh, pick up verse 5 of 45. I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Now the context here actually begins in chapter 44. Um, what God is saying is that his people are going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. And what God is going to do is that God is going to raise up a guy they're going to be in there 70 years, and they're in Babylon. But God, God is going to raise up a guy named Cyrus. Um, and Cyrus is also another name for Darius the Mede. It's a, it's a title. So Cyrus is, is going to come in, and he is going to defeat Babylon. This is all in the book of Daniel. And what he's going to do is, because the 70 years are up, 
He's going to restore the people that are in Babylon in captivity and take them back to Jerusalem, and he's going to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay? That's the context. So if you look at verse 28 of 45, God says, It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will perform all my desire. He declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. This Cyrus is going to do this for the Jewish people. Uh, Thus says the Lord God to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings. Go down to verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. This guy, this guy's not a believer in the living God. Verse 5. I am the Lord. There is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. By the way, he's talking to Cyrus, and Cyrus won't be born for 150 years. Did you catch that? You think you're the master of your fate? You think you're the captain of your soul? God's talking to this guy a century and a half before, before he's born and telling him this is what's going to happen. We are not the master of our fate. We're not the captain of our souls. God is. And you see, once you begin to grasp this, this is a pretty strong case against self-sufficiency. Is it not? Look at verse 7. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's a wild verse. Uh, if, uh, do you have well-being in your life? Do you have peace in your life? Well, where does it come from? It comes from the Lord. All right, here's another question. Do you have some calamity in your life? Where does it come from? See, this fits Ecclesiastes. Remember Ecclesiastes 7? Consider the work of God. Think about the work of God. Who can straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be glad, of course, because you have well-being and prosperity. In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, think, because God has made, God has made the one as well as the other. These, um, <laughs> these times in life when you find yourself suddenly trapped, ensnared by unforeseen events that you never saw coming, that have disrupted your life and disrupted your plan, these are from the hand of God. Calamities are, because calamities, and there are degrees of calamities, but calamities get our attention. Calamities cause us to hear. Calamities shake us to the very core of our existence. Um, I, I, I read uh, Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, written by Henley. Uh, a man who lived at the same time as Henley was a man named J.C. Ryle, John Charles Ryle. Um, John Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle, wa was a tremendous preacher and writer uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His stuff is worth reading. He, he wrote a book called Holiness. He's just dynamite. He died in 1900. Uh, Henley died in 1903. So they were both Brits, were contemporaries, but two completely different paths. Uh, J.C. Ryle, his story is a fascinating story. 
uh, I just need to give you two words to explain his life. Downton Abbey. He was the eldest son in Downton Abbey. Only it wasn't Downton Abbey. It was, um, what was it? It was, I'll tell you in a minute. Their thousand-acre family home home was Hinbury. Hinbury. Let me read a little bit of this to you. Because this guy, this guy, you talk about natural gifts. You, you talk about giftedness on every front. This, this guy was, in England, was an amazing, legendary rugby player. He was famous. He was brilliant. He was wealthy. I mean, this guy had it on every front. Uh, he, he, at the age of 57, he wrote a biography. De- never intended to be published. He just wrote it for his kids. He wanted them to know the story. He says, my father was a wealthy man. He was a landed proprietor and a banker. I was the oldest son and looked forward to inheriting a large fortune. I was on the point of entering parliament. I had all things before me until I was 25. But then it pleased God, catch this, then it pleased God to alter my prospects in life through my father's bankruptcy. That's what you call a calamity. We got up one summer's morning with all the world before us as usual and went to bed that evening completely and entirely ruined. It would perhaps be impossible to give any correct idea of the stunning violence of the blow which the ruin inflicted upon all. The immediate consequences were bitter and painful in the extreme and humiliating to the utmost degree. The creditors naturally, rightly, and justly seized everything, and we children were left with nothing but our own personal property and our clothes. Our household, of course, was immediately broken up. Uh, Men servants, butlers, underbutler, footman, coachman, groom, housekeeper, housemaids, Downton Abbey. Uh, He had become a Christian just the year before this happened. This was catastrophic. This was a calamity. He goes on and he says this in his biography for his kids. With all the world before me, I lost everything and saw the whole future of my life turned upside down and thrown into confusion. See, this is what happens when calamity strikes us. It totally confuses. Because we were making sense out of our life. We had our plans and our hopes and dreams and objectives. And then now we're suddenly confused because we're just stunned. We're shocked. We're in vertigo. Um, he says, this event, I'm quite certain, it inflicted a wound on my body and mind of which I feel the effects most heavily at this day and shall feel if I live to be 100 years old. That's how deep the shock was. To suppose that people do not feel things because they do not scream and yell and fill the air with their cries is simple nonsense. The plain fact that there was no one of the family whom this touched more than it did me. My father and mother were no longer young and in the downhill of life. What he's going to talk about is primogenitor, that everything went to the firstborn son. You see. Winston Churchill was born at Blenheim Palace, which was given to a great, 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 great grandfather, uh, the Duke of Marlborough. Uh, He was given the biggest castle in all of England. You can visit it today. Churchill was born there, but only because his parents were visiting. He was born premature. That wasn't given to his dad. His dad was basically given nothing because his dad was not the firstborn son. Ryle was the firstborn son. 
This touched me more than any other member of the family. My mother and father were no longer, no longer young in the downhill of life. My brothers and sisters, of course, never expected to live at Henbury, and naturally never thought of it as their house after a certain time. I, on the contrary, as the eldest son, 25, with all the world before me, lost everything, and I saw the whole future of my life turned upside down and thrown into confusion. I do not think there has ever been a single day in my life for 30 years that I have not remembered the great humiliation of having to leave Henbury. Um, he says, ever since I lived there, I have never felt at home, but I'm a sojourner and a dweller in lodging. He had no clue what he was going to do, but God had a clue. Uh, in, in England, he, th this was huge because of the class system. This was huge. Uh, he, he not only lost his wealth, he lost his family, he, he lost his friends, he lost his social structure, he was anathema. He was unclean. And uh, suddenly, God started moving him to the ministry, where he was for the rest of his life. Uh, died as the Bishop of Liverpool. And uh, a lot of Anglican, Anglican bishops were very liberal and didn't believe the Word of God. He believed the Word of God. Had a phenomenal ministry. couple thoughts. Reliance on natural gifts will not get you through life. I, I told you last week, if you were here, that I was talking to a friend of mine I've known for a long, long time, and he was reminding me of a conversation we had almost 40 years ago, and I was a young pastor, and I made a statement to him. And I said, I made the statement because I was young and stupid. That statement revolved around natural gifts. And I had, uh, shortly after that statement, because I had such a tendency to rely on my natural gifts, God took me through a very, very deep and painful and cataclysmic depression that I thought was going to finish me. It was shocking. It was stunning to me. Uh, you know, here's the thing about guys who rely on natural gifts. If you've got certain natural gifts, it's easy to slide by on your natural gifts. And you never develop self-control. You never develop discipline. You never develop certain things that you need in order to plod through life because life, because let me tell you something, the race is not to the swift, the race is to the plodders. And you've got to learn to show up every day. Uh, you know, some guys have great gifts and they just, and they never develop anything. I, I remember when I was a young guy in seminary, there was a guy in our, who was a tremendous gifted guy who was the golden boy. But um, and um, was loved not only by his peers but by the professors. Loved uh, because of his gifts and because of his personality. When he got out of seminary, went to a, a position that was incredible. Just a, an incredible position in ministry. But he always took moral shortcuts. I, I shouldn't say that. That's too strong. He often would take moral shortcuts. He never developed his character, did not develop his self-discipline, did not develop his self-control, did not develop his character. He just worked on his gifts. And he wound up in ruin. 
another observation. God designs disappointments and calamities to drive us to him. For you see, we need to rely on the one who gave us the gifts instead of relying on the gifts. Does that make sense, guys? Um, let's look now. Let me give you the third principle. Uh, by the way, my clock, I've got six zeros on my clock. I guess the water pressure affected the clock. <laughs> or maybe I'm out of time. I have 7.46? Okay. Is that central time? Do you know? Ron, okay. Um, I'm just flying blind here. On my, I'm just reading the instruments. L let's, let's wrap this up. But let's go to verses 13 and 16 where we see the third principle. And the third principle is this. Because we all have the calamities. We all hit the wall at some point. Calamities and defeats can lead to wisdom and victory. Calamities and defeats can lead to wisdom and victory. Verse 13. Before I read this, verse, this section of verses. I was getting in my car today, and I got a text as I was getting in the car. Hey, Steve. Uh, it's been nine years since I was at that conference you did. Nine years ago today that I was at that conference. Conference in the Metroplex. Uh, I followed you out of the parking lot. You went to your house, I went to mine. I repented to, my, to the Lord and to my wife and confessed my sin. He was living in an adulterous relationship. Christian guy, living with a gal. Uh, he said, nine years ago today, I thank God for his mercy and grace. I don't know where that came. I remember that very well. I didn't even know he was there. I didn't even know he was there. His wife had contacted me and said, I'm praying, would you pray with me that he'll come to your conference? And I remember that night, I remember looking around and I didn't see him, but he was there somewhere. I had no idea. And then I was dreading, I was afraid she was gonna contact me again and I, I and she did, and she said, you'll never believe what happened. And I was shocked. And since then, what God has done. This guy went off the rails. Now, uh, he and his wife have a ministry to those who are in similar situations. It, 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 he's, it's taken years to rebuild trust. But you know what? Out of the calamity, God's brought incredible victory. Let's look at verses. And, and can I say this? In his life, God's brought incredible wisdom. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes 13, uh, 9, 13. Watch this. Also I came to see his wisdom under the sun and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. If you go to Israel, you can go to a fortress on the hill top called Masada where the Jews made their last stand, and you can see the, the ramp that's still there, that massive siege works that they came and built and took those guys. When they got up there, they'd all committed suicide. But to see that, it's staggering. And so this is the story, a similar story. Small city, few men in it, great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. 
Watch this. But there was found in it a poor wise, a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered the poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. See, <laughs> men love being strong. We, we love being physically strong. We, we love being mentally strong. We love having all of our faculties. As we get older, we lose them. Sometimes our memories go. Our physical strength goes. It's not, it's not fun and it's not easy. We love being strong. God takes strong men and makes them weak on purpose through calamity so that he can rebuild them and be men that he can use to his glory. And then they can become men of wisdom and experience victory in their lives. The point is, wisdom can be learned through calamities. This is very important. God doesn't waste these things. These are planned events that are designed to turn us towards him. Now, here's what's interesting. He made a statement here, and we could fly right by it. Uh, God may, uh, here was a wise man that delivered a city, but you know what happened to him? No one remembered that man. There will be times in life where, uh, can I tell you something? Part of self-sufficiency is being used by God and nobody gives you credit. There's a principle for you. If you're after credit, you've got, you, you, need to, you need to grow up in Christ. It's about giving glory to God. Have you ever felt like you've done something for the church or for someone in ministry and then they forgot about you? And you're upset about it? You shouldn't be upset. Just give God glory and keep moving. There'll be times when you're forgotten. You know what? They forgot Joseph. Joseph was in prison. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was following. He was in prison. He interprets the dream. He says to the one guy, you're going to die. To the other guy, you're going to live. And on the way out to the one guy, he says, don't forget me. What did the guy do? He forgot him. So Mordecai heard about a plot to bring down the king, and he reported it to the bodyguard, and the bodyguard reported it to the king, and they took the two guys, and they discovered the plot, and they saved the king's life. And you know what they did? They forgot. Until the right time. Until the right time. Oftentimes, God will use you in a way, maybe in a significant way, but others get credit. Don't let that bother you. Just give glory to God that you were used. And just get under the authority and get under the mercy and just keep going. Okay? That's how you learn to become a servant. Don't get bitter. Don't get mad. Don't get angry. Don't write blogs. Just follow Christ. It's also possible that your wisdom will be rejected. Look at verses 16 and 17. And I want to say three things in verses 16 and 17. But the principle in verses 16 and 17 is the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. That's a statement from 1 Corinthians 1.30. The wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. So if you want the wisdom of God, listen to Christ. Read his book. Okay. Now let's see what 17 and 18 say. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Man, I've got some stuff here from, from some commentators who wrote 40 and 50 and 60 years ago, and they're writing about <laughs> the shouting of, of, of rulers and those who want to be rulers, and you'd think that they're talking about the primaries going on in our nation right now. Uh, but it's always been that way. Notice what he says. He says, the words of the wise 
heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Note this. If the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ, here's my first point. We get wisdom by listening to Christ in quiet. The, the guy that I told you who sent me the text, have there been changes in his life? Yeah, yeah. Guy, guy very successful, had a lot of gifts. Uh, you know how he starts his day? He gets up in the morning and he grabs his Bible. I have a friend in Atlanta who told me recently, he said, you know, You know, Steve, I get up in the morning, I get my Bible, I go to my den, and I turn on that fireplace. If it's under 70 degrees outside, I turn on the fireplace. First thing in the morning. Everybody's in bed, everybody's asleep. I got my coffee, I got my Bible, I got that fire, and I read the Word of Christ in quiet. That's how you get wisdom. You get wisdom by reading the words of Christ in quiet. Secondly, then in turn, and this is what the text is saying, we speak wisdom quietly. You don't have to bang a drum. You don't have to raise your voice. Wisdom is wisdom. Isn't that what that says? The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. And then look at 18. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. What does that mean? Well, just think about it. One sinner destroys much good. I give you a lot of illustrations. The best illustration is Adam. If you read the account of creation, God would create, he would create, he would create, and God would say, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and one man and one woman came along who thought they knew best and who gloried in their own self-sufficiency and they ruined it all. I've ruined good, you've ruined good. But you see, the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ because Jesus, and I think I said this last week, Jesus was the Lamb of God before the foundations of the world. Jesus was the Savior before there was sin. Is that not staggering? So God, why don't you just change the plan? That's a mystery. Sin came in through Adam, Romans 5. Through sin, through one man, sin entered the world. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came and took the sin. Your sin and my sin. And paid for it in full. One man can destroy the good of wisdom. But Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And you know the amazing thing is, guys, as we're walking through life and trying to make our way, here's what I notice. I notice the Christian life is a series. God's good to us. He gives us favor. But it's a series of events where you're going to run into unforeseen things you never saw coming. And they're all designed to point you to Jesus Christ and to throw yourself on his mercy. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, 1, he's, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, he said, you remember our affliction in Asia, 
when we are excessively burdened beyond our strength, this is a calamity, so that we despaired even of life itself. And then he goes on and talks about that this happened to him in order that he would not trust in himself, but in Jesus Christ who raises the dead. The wisest way to live life is by listening to Christ and his word and then putting it into practice. The unforeseen events, he'll get you through them. But he'll use them to make you a better man. They're painful. They hurt. The effects may stay with you until you take your last breath. But as David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for your truth. For the guys that are struggling and really hurting tonight, I pray that you would encourage them, that you have not forgotten them, but that you've got their front, you've got your, their back, and you've got their flanks. And you'll get them through. Faithful is he who called you, and he will bring it to pass. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.